Hi, welcome back to Good Distinctions. My name is Teresa Morris. And I'm Will Wright. And Good Distinctions are? The spice of life. And today we're going to be talking about a little bit of an extra spicy topic. We're going to be talking about female ordination in the Catholic Church because this has been brought up in the ongoing synod on synodality. And this is a topic that has come up throughout the history of the Catholic Church. It's been revisited multiple times. And it seemed like perhaps this conversation was closed in the 90s and it's come back up again. So we think that it's a, it's important to talk about because it's important to talk about the dynamics between men and women in the Catholic Church and equality in the Catholic Church. And it's really important to draw distinctions about what true equality is in the church and what might be dancing upon um, conflating sameness with equality. Hmm. So before we kind of go into where the church has historically stood on this issue, I just want to quickly talk about one of the distinctions that has helped me as I've thought through this as a woman in the Catholic church in my own life when the question of should women be priests or should women be ordained as deacons has been brought up either by students or just has come up in my own heart as I have discerned different vocations. And that's the difference between a vocation and a profession. And when we look at equality between men and women in the broader culture at large, we can see that women's equality in the workplace has come when we've acknowledged that women are capable often of doing roles that men are also capable of doing, right? So women can be teachers, men can be teachers. Women can be firefighters, men can be firefighters. Women can be doctors, men can be doctors. And St. Edith Sign even says that there's no profession that a man can do that a woman cannot also do. And I think that that's true. However, there's a difference between vocation and profession or vocation and career. So if we only look at the priesthood as something that men can do as a career or as a profession, then of course we should say women should also be able to do that, right? And if we look at the ways that the priesthood expresses itself externally, so things like preaching or ministering or running the checkbook for a parish or things like that, and we can say, yeah, women can do those things. And oftentimes we can say, I know women who could do those things better than my parish priests can do them, right? That sometimes you, a student could be listening to a homily on a Sunday and saying, man, I have a sister who teaches me religion during the week and she's a much better preacher than my, my parish priest is. And she could give a better homily than this guy can. But that doesn't mean that she should be able to be a priest because the profession is different than a vocation. And women are called to vocations that men are not called to. And men are called to vocations that women are not called to because vocation is an ontological call. It comes from a person's being, which is much more than a person's capacity to do any particular job. So that distinction, I think, is really important. And I think sometimes the conversation around should women be ordained priests loses that difference, that we conflate how women have gained equality in the workforce with how women should gain equality in the church. And those are two very, very different conversations because a vocation within the church is very different than a career or a profession in the workplace. So, Will, if you could just talk a little bit about why you think that this conversation is recurring and a little bit about what this conversation has looked like in the Synod and historically in the church. 
I think that in the present moment, we're in a very confused period of world history. I mean, not just church history, but we uh, we have succumbed to this idea that the differences between men and women are non-existent. That, like you said, anything a man can do, a woman can do. Anything a woman can do, a man can do. And a lot of that is a postmodern word game where words don't have meanings. We can just sort of create the context out of thin air. If we say that someone is a woman, then they're a woman. Uh, this is why Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman, performs so well, mm-hmm. is because he's asking these very basic questions to people on the street, what is a woman? And nobody seems to be able to answer it. But it it's this misapprehension of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and also what equality means, what sameness means, which we can get into later. But historically, um, I think we're in this sort of postmodern moment, which interestingly is fueled by Marxism. I mean, there's a lot of people, especially in uh, liberation theology in South America that have gone all in on uh, Marxist ideology and sort of syncretized it with the Catholic church. And so I think that's part of the answer. Uh, I think it's multifaceted, but when it comes to Marxism, it's interesting because at the same time, you have this sort of meta narrative of uh, power struggle, and you know, until women have everything that men have in terms of careers and all this, we won't be equal. Um, and that's very Marxist. But then at the same time, we're sort of in this postmodern sense of nothing is true, or rather, everything is true. It, it depends which way you look at it. And so we need to break down tradition, break down uh, any sort of authority and just sort of make the authority ourselves. And it's interesting because these two groups, the postmodernists and the Marxists, get along very well, and yet they're diametrically opposed. It -hmm. makes no sense, except for when you realize that postmodernism doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we go all the way back to the beginning of the church, the, the women who were called deacons, that word diakonos in Greek just means servant. It means service. And so there were certain jobs that would need to be done because there weren't churches. There was households where the Eucharist was being celebrated, and those households needed to be cleaned and prepared and readied in some way. And so the the women, the, the deaconesses, if you will, were sort of working on that. They were servants, but they weren't ordained ministers. Um, and mm-hmm. if there was a sort of ordination, it wasn't to the ministerial priesthood. Um, and I guess I'll go into the sacrament of holy orders for a second in a moment. But this idea of the diaconate of service, um, I'm going to redo that. Actually, I'm going to go into it right now. So <laughs> the, the sacrament of holy orders is one sacrament in three parts, in three stages, three levels of participation. It's not three sacraments, right? Deacon, priest, bishop, diaconate, presbyterate, episcopate. These aren't three separate sacraments. It's one sacrament of holy orders in which a man is partaking at a different level. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, what that participation is, is a participation in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Because when we look at the testimony of Scripture— and a lot of people don't understand this, is every single religion that was existent at the time of Jesus Christ walking this earth had female priests. In fact, it was very odd to find a male priesthood while mm-hmm. Jesus was walking the earth. The fact that 
Jesus instituted a male priesthood was odd. I mean, mm-hmm. incredibly odd uh, in the history of the world at the time. So a lot of people will say, well, Jesus was so countercultural, he probably meant to, like, no, no, no. It's actually countercultural for him to have made a male priesthood. Interesting. Um, and then besides that, he, he had all of these women who were his followers and disciples. He appeared to St. Mary Magdalene first before the apostles. She was the apostle to the apostles and, and shared the good news of the resurrection. He chose, um, God chose his mother, Mary, to be the queen of heaven and earth from before her, her conception. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure how much better you can get than queen of all that is. That's a pretty high mm-hmm. role. And especially yeah. if we relate it to the Old Testament role of the queen mother, like Mary has more authority in the early church than Peter in a very mm-hmm. real sense, in a very maternal sense, which if anyone just sort of analogously said, who would you listen to first? And I'll just pose this to anyone listening. Do you care what the Pope in Rome says first or your mother? Like yeah. immediately right now, go, you have to yeah. choose to, they both told you to do something. You're going to do both of it. Who are you going to listen to first? Mm-hmm. And it's your mother. Come on. Right. Everybody knows this. Yeah. Which is why I, I think that Mary is the easiest example to point to, to say the priesthood doesn't equal some type of higher dignity than something mm-hmm. women are capable of. Right. That if the priesthood did bestow some type of higher dignity upon someone who receives holy orders than every other person in existence, then Mary would have had to be a priest because Mm -hmm. she is higher in dignity than any other human who has ever existed. And so it's clear that there's not something about holy orders that means that this person is a better person or they have more human dignity than other humans around them. And Mary is an easy example of that. And the way that Christ calls the women around him two different roles than he calls the men around him, that it's sort of this sense of women are the messengers and men are the ministers, that he he does appear to Mary Magdalene first and he he lets her go tell people about him. So women are the have this kind of messenger role because, like you said, you're going to listen to your mother. You're going to listen to someone who is maternal more than someone who's just saying, I'm only speaking on authority. And the church does need both, right? That's why we have mm-hmm. a Petrine disposition and a Marian disposition that the church needs both because the church does need both men and women, but not men and women doing the exact same thing. I did have one question to clarify Mm -hmm. um, on that. You had mentioned that, you know, holy orders is one vocation with three parts. How does that fit with someone who's called to the permanent diaconate? And why wouldn't a woman be able to be called to the permanent diaconate in that sense? I think that's when you, you have to take the sacrament as a totality And whatever you say about the diaconate in terms of the ordained ministry of the deacon has to be true about the priesthood and the episcopacy as well. Or I guess I should say whatever you say about, um, no, that that's right. It's what you say about the deacon is true of the priest and the bishop as well, because every priest is a deacon. Mm -hmm. Every bishop is a deacon and a priest. Like it, it builds, it's, it's the same ministerial priesthood of Jesus Christ and the deacons are participating at a lower level. Um, so I guess what it boils down to is that the church has always held that only a man can receive the sacrament of holy orders. And when it comes to something so fundamental to the sacrament, there's certain things about the sacraments that can be changed, that can be reformed or modified in some way. 
without injuring the sacrament's integrity. Um, so like a, an easy example of that would be that in the Eastern churches, they use leavened bread mm -hmm. as the matter of the Eucharist rather than unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is the tie to the Passover, uh, whereas the leavened bread is showing that Christ is risen. So that mm -hmm. more sort of visual cue. Um, both are fine. Both are wheat mm -hmm. bread, though. And so if you start getting, and they actually brought this up during the Amazonian Synod of can you use the uh, part of the yucca plant to mm -hmm. make the Eucharist? And they said, no, it has to be wheat bread. Now, even somebody says, well, I receive a gluten-free host every Sunday. No, no, you don't. You receive a low gluten host. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a very different thing than gluten-free. But mm -hmm. we use these things interchangeably with just sort of carelessly. Um, but there's always some wheat in any piece of bread that is used to make the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And so we pay attention to the matter of the sacraments. You can't use Kool-Aid to baptize somebody. Yeah. Um, incidentally, you can use olive oil to confirm someone, but only in a very um, emergency type situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose if an emergency needed to use Kool-Aid, God would probably allow you, but that was probably not a good example, but whatever. <laughs> the, the point is when it comes to the sacraments, who's coming to the sacrament matters. Yeah. When it comes to the sacrament of marriage, you have to have a man and a woman. And what's more, they have to be willing. Um, like there's, there's even more things when it comes to marriage, you can't be forced into a marriage. You have to be open to fidelity. You have to be open to uh, fecundity and, and all these and, and a desire to be united for life. Mm -hmm. Like if any of these things aren't there, it's not valid. Right. So what is it? Um, about a man that's different from a woman that allows him to be ordained? I think that's really the question mm -hmm. because you're right in saying that it's not about some sort of authority or power trip. In fact, the deacon is a servant. That's literally what the word means, right? Mm -hmm. In Greek, the, the diakonos servant. Um, they were like the servants of the king. That was the, was the original deacon um, in, in Greek culture. And there was always this tie to humility. And the root right. of humility is humus, which is soil, dirt, like getting mm -hmm. down there. Um, yeah. And so the deacon is one who serves. It's not, it's sort of an inversion of the norm. Mm -hmm. We think about the priest or, or the kingship of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus show his kingship? Well, first it's by bending low and washing the apostles' feet. And then it's being raised on the cross. That's his throne. Well, if that's the world that we're living in, if that's the perspective, the worldview, then yeah, kingship is going to look very different than the societal norm. Mm -hmm. So really, lay people and then deacon, priest, bishop, pope. Mm -hmm. right. uh, one of my favorite titles of the pope is the um, servus servorum, the servant of the servants. Yeah. Right? So that that's the right way of understanding it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I very much agree. And I, I do really firmly believe that the root of this push for women to be priests oftentimes can be traced back to clericalism. And that mm. when we have, like you're saying, this misunderstanding of what the priesthood is. And so if we do have a culture of the priesthood where, you know, priests are in this prized position and they're given all these benefits that the laity aren't or whatever, then, yeah, of course, women would look at that and they would be like, wait a second. I don't even have the opportunity to have that type of role in the church. This doesn't seem fair or equal. 
But if priests actually are living into the priesthood of Christ and what Christ has established for them, that there is this foot washing priesthood where priests are serving their people and they are aware of and listening to the needs of their parishioners and their flock. And they're serving those needs, not the needs that they would prefer that they have, or they're not, you know, constantly, you know, making YouTube channels or whatever, that they're not serving their own ego. They're not serving their own preferences. They really are servants of the church and her people. Then I think that a lot of the push for the female priesthood would fade away because there would be an understanding of, oh, there, there isn't this power that priests have that I, that I don't have, um, or there isn't this, this prize position or this capacity to have more say or more influence or whatever in the church that I don't have. So I, I think a lot of it can be, can be traced back to clericalism and a, a misallocation of power and a misunderstanding of power and authority in the church. And so, yeah, I, I very much agree with you that, um, that I really think trying to get women into the priesthood just furthers clericalism and it just furthers a misunderstanding of the priesthood. And it doesn't actually change the culture of the Catholic church and call priests really far more deeply into a life of, of service and an orientation to the priesthood Christ has established because yes, like Christ wears a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. And like, that's what the priests are called to like, yes, you're, we're all participating in this kingship, but it's a life of sacrifice and service and not a life of privilege and power. Well, and it absolutely is a middle position because we all participate in the priesthood of Christ. We don't all participate in the ministerial priesthood of Christ, but as baptized Christians, we do share in the three offices of priest, prophet, and king. Mm -hmm. And so there is a very real sense where we are called to practice that priesthood. But what is a priest? A priest is is fundamentally one who offers sacrifice. And that's true regardless of whether you're Christian or not. That That's what priesthood is and always has been in every culture. Mm-hmm. And so if it's about that, if that's the authority is, is offering sacrifice, offering yourselves as a living sacrifice, as St. Paul says in Romans, like that's, that's what priesthood looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, when you add the ministerial aspect, now we can get up to like, okay, a bishop does have power. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of power? Well, he has the power of, and I, I think this kind of points to a deeper issue with not understanding how men and women ought to function, say, in a, a marriage or in a family. Is the, the authority of the father and the authority of a mother in a family looks different. Mm-hmm. Both are necessary, completely necessary. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there's still an authority. So what does it look like? Well, the, the call of the bishop, according to Vatican II, is to teach, preach, sanctify, and govern. So teaching in a very specific sense, like a magisterial sense, in union with all the bishops of the world and the pope, um, preaching at mass especially, but even outside of mass. And that's where the deacon really comes in. The deacon is given a book of the gospels, at his ordination to show that he's to share the good news with the world. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that women can't share the good news, but it's, they're not called to that in a liturgical sense. And that's not up to me or you or anyone else that Mm -hmm. actually goes back to St. Paul says women should not preach in church. It's very clear. Uh, People break this apart and they say, well, this is, this was the culture that he lived in. It's like, no, actually, I think he's talking about the fundamental nature of like you were saying, like, even if someone's better at preaching, 
Yeah. That doesn't mean they're called to do it in this context. Mm -hmm. But we can preach all over the place. I can preach preach in our own households. Mm -hmm. We can preach in school. We can, well, we, I can, but um, <laughs> sorry, public school. Um, <laughs> but there's a, there's all sorts of ways we can exercise that when it comes to sanctify only priests and bishops can offer the Holy Eucharist. Only priests and bishops can hear confessions. Um, but deacons can also baptize, uh, they're still participating in that sacramental life in a sense. And then in terms of governance, that's where I think people get the most hung up because they see, okay, well, it's this um, overwhelming patriarchy where the, the man at the top is just dictating exactly what we should do or not do. And, you know, to some extent, to some extent, yes. Uh, and that makes people uncomfortable for some reason. But we've had a hierarchical church for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. If the bishop is in union with Christ, like if he's actually living his episcopate where he's drawing from Christ, he spends time in adoration, does a holy hour every day, he's praying his bravery, he's seeking to be holy, then the things he tells us to do under obedience are going to bring us closer to holiness. Mm -hmm. So this it's not like this authoritarian, totalitarian view of, you must do what I say, lest you be damned to hell. Mm -hmm. um, it's more as sons and daughters, we should have filial obedience to our bishop. Right. Um, and then the priests as the co-workers of the bishop in the vineyard have that same authority at the parish. And then the deacon is, so this is where people actually get it wrong. I think a lot of people say, well, the deacon's under the priest. It's like, well, not actually. Technically, the deacon is the servant of the bishop. Mm -hmm. um, now, he might have immediate jurisdiction, or he might be under the immediate jurisdiction of his pastor if he's assigned to a parish. But nonetheless, if the bishop calls him up and says, do this thing, he's going to do that mm -hmm. instead of what the pastor says. Yeah. Because the deacon and the priest are both under the authority of the bishop. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the lay people, we're not under authority in the same way that the deacon and the priest are. Mm -hmm. If the bishop calls us and says, I want you to move to this city and do this job, I mean, we should take it seriously. It's the bishop asking, but we're not under pain of obedience to actually follow through with right, that. Right. We can say, oh, you know, Your Excellency, that's a great idea, but uh, no mm -hmm. thanks. Um, priests and deacons can't do that. Right. Priests and deacons will say, yes, okay. <laughs> They mm -hmm. might express discontent, but then they have to go do it under pain right. of obedience. Yeah. So I think when people see the governance of the church, they think it it must be this heavy-handed, top-down thing, or it's a complete democracy. See, these are the two positions. Mm -hmm. Either it's this totalitarian monarchy, uh, absolute monarchy, or it's a complete democracy. And the truth is very much in the middle. I mean, I, I like to say that the church is not a democracy. It's a monarchy where Christ is king. Even if Pope Francis wants to distance himself from that language of saying that the Pope is like a monarch and the Vatican mm -hmm. is like a, um, sort of a microcosm of the whole church with this sort of monarchical feel and getting rid of the papal tiara and all this, that doesn't stop the fact that Jesus is king over all that is. I mean, mm -hmm. we celebrate Christ the King as the last liturgical day of the year before Advent. So I think um, I think people are uncomfortable with monarchy and that sort mm -hmm. of monarchical um, 
flavor. I think people are, especially in America, are uncomfortable with anything that doesn't seem completely democratic. Uh, And I think that people are really misapprehending what authority is. Um, And that's something that's supposed to channel grace and lead us Mm -hmm. to holiness. Yeah. And I I do think that there's, you know, there's a, there's a misunderstanding of of authority. Like you said, that sometimes people equate authority with power when really authority, Mm -hmm. I think has a better synonym in responsibility that Mm -hmm. who is this person responsible for? What are they responsible to do? Um, and, and I think that if there was that understanding that there would be probably more of a respect of the office, um, and the people who hold them where it's like, yeah, in the same way that, um, you know, if, if I was a mother, like I have responsibility for my children in a way, other people who are influences in their lives don't, right. Mm -hmm. Even if there's a teacher who they're very close to, there are still responsibilities that only I should have as their mom. And that doesn't mean that I have more power than a teacher. It just means for this particular child, I'm the one responsible for them. And so in a similar way, the way bishops are responsible for their diocese and not others or certain people or priests and not the lady, I think that that responsibility is probably a much better understanding than power being attached to these offices. And I also think that there's a real question you know, when people say, well, sure, like you said, you know, if a if a priest or a bishop is praying daily and they are being obedient to Christ's call in their lives, then that trickles down into their flock. That is the way that church hierarchy is designed and it ideally functions well mm-hmm. and it, it will function well if that if that is the model. But you can have very corrupt and we do have in the past and still do have very corrupt priests and bishops. And so I think that that question of corruption is a real is a real issue to bring up and respond to. But I think that saying women should fill those roles doesn't change the root of that, right? Just because if we say that corruption in the church will cease or will become less if women are priests and women are bishops, then what we're saying is that women are more moral than men inherently. And that is not what we want to say. We do not want to say that one gender is inherently more moral than the other. And so sin and temptation and Satan and just natural human imperfection will always exist. It will always exist. And we should respond to corruption in the church and and sin and real evil in the church with better formation of priests, with better ways to hold priests accountable. We should respond to those things. But if Mm. we say that the proper response is to put women in those roles, then what we're saying is women will not fall into those temptations in the way men do, and that women are some type of better human than men are. And that's just not true. And again, it's this conflation of we... We are trying to, in one sense, say, oh, well, we're, we're pushing for equality, but then we're going to come out and say, well, actually, it's not really equality. It's actually that women are better or more moral than men. And that's also not true. So it's like two sides of the same coin and both sides are the wrong answer. Hmm. Yeah, well, it gets back to that question that I, I posed and haven't even attempted to answer, which is what's different about men and women that men can be ordained and women can't? Because the church has always held that only a man can receive the sacrament of holy orders. Mm-hmm. And in fact, just as a side note, uh, if if someone attempts to ordain a woman, um, they are excommunicated automatically, according to canon law. 
So the church takes it very seriously. So why? Why is that? What What is it about men and women that's so different that only a man could do this as a calling, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I had a student ask me one day, they were like, Mr. Wright, do you think we have uh, male souls and female souls? And I was like, that's a great question. I haven't actually thought about it too much. I don't know. Let me go look into it. I did know the answer. I just didn't want to have the conversation. Um, and <laughs> we had we had something to do. And I, anyway, um, I, but it's like, no, our, our souls are not gendered. So that seems to me to show that we can absolutely both accomplish it. I mean, we have the exact same skills when it comes to intellect and will, the powers, same powers anyway. We, mm-hmm. we can know things and we can choose to act. But I think that what people get down to today, what the, the issues that they're trying to grapple with are, okay, if we are alike in dignity, if we have the same powers of intellect and will, then what is so different about men and women that we can't do mm-hmm. this this job, like you said, and right. I think you already answered that right. objection, but I think our bodies matter. I mean, mm-hmm. I know our bodies matter. We're body and soul. We're embodied mm-hmm. souls and sold bodies, whatever way we want to look at it. And that sort of hylomorphic reality of who we are as human beings doesn't ever end, right? Even, even when we die and our souls and bodies are separated, in that period between that moment and the resurrection of the body, we will be incomplete. Mm-hmm. We will not be able to do a lot of the things that we can right. do right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be glorifying God and we'll be completely happy. But imagine our souls sort of just free floating in unable to really do much of anything mm-hmm. uh, other than spiritual things. So like we can still pray, we can still uh, communicate with God, we can worship him. And those are not small things. Right. But what is it about this sort of mediated reality, this incarnated reality that we have, mm-hmm. that's fundamental to who we are as human beings, that make men and women so different? Right. And I don't want to get reductionist here. And this is why I want to bring this up and not mm-hmm. answer it right away, because I want to hear what you have to say. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's no but. I, I'd like to hear what you have to say first. Yeah. Well, I actually, it's it's really interesting you bring up the question of a gendered soul because I do think that we have gendered souls, but I don't think that changes the answer because mm-hmm. in my mind, my understanding of it is that matter always follows form. And if that's true, then the matter of our bodies would follow the form of our souls. And so our gendered and sexed bodies would follow the gender of our souls. So my feminine nature exists not just due to my body, but it's expressed through my body. Um, But that doesn't change the answer of the, which is that there's an an ontological difference between men and women, that Mm -hmm. it's not simply at the level of men have a different body than women do, that there's an ontological reality that men are ontologically different than women are. We're the same in in human being, right? We're, we're both human and yeah. we are equal in dignity, but there's a difference in how men's being shows up in the world and is manifested and expressed through male bodies. 
And, you know, JP2 uses the term capacity when he, in 1994, he spoke out against ordaining women into the priesthood. And he said, this is where the church stands and the church will not change on this stance that women cannot be ordained to the priesthood. And he says, we're not, this isn't an issue of discrimination. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of capacity. And there's a difference between, there's this philosophical difference between act and potency. So, you know, we have different potencies than other things in nature do. That um, a dolphin has the potency to breathe underwater far longer than a human being does. And so we can't act because we don't have that potency to do that. I cannot exist in the world in the ocean like a dolphin can. And women have different potencies than men do. That women have the potency to become mothers and men don't have that potency. So they can't act as a mother because they don't have the potency. It's not part of their being and it's not part of their bodies expressing their being. And so women don't have the potency to become priests. And so that's what I think what JP2 is talking about is that this ontological difference isn't something where we're looking at what men can do that women can't do. And we found the one thing that men can do that women can't. And we're like, yeah, we got to really just like lean into this and make sure women can't enter like this sphere of influence. It's simply that even if we felt like women could not be equal in the Catholic church without becoming priests, we still could not ordain them as priests because by the nature of being a woman, body and soul, I cannot become a priest. I don't have the capacity to. Even if I can do, I could like say all the words that a priest says at mass. I could like listen to someone spill their guts to me and like pretend to absolve them. I could run youth groups at parishes, whatever, but I, I do not have the capacity to receive the change that men receive when they receive holy orders, that my soul as a female soul doesn't have the capacity to be ontologically changed by holy orders. So yeah, that's what, when I read what JP2 wrote in the nineties, that's how I understand it is that it's, it really doesn't have anything to do with equality or discrimination or anything. It simply has to do with capacity, which is women just do not have the potency to act as priests and are the way women's souls are created, do not have the ability to receive holy orders and be changed by holy orders. Well, and it, it's worth noting, just kind of pulling out what you said there at the end, that a man's soul is changed ontologically by the sacrament of holy orders. He is a priest mm -hmm. forever. Right. Um, a deacon is a deacon forever. A bishop is a bishop forever. Um, which adds to the pressure, honestly, because mm -hmm. that means that they will be judged based on that which I, I don't want that. that I don't, that's yeah, a lot. I do not envy. Mm -mm. No. Uh, yeah, JP2. So you brought up um, Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. This is uh, the main sort of, there's two paragraphs. One is sort of setting up the dogmatic statement, and the other one is actually proclaiming it. So this mm -hmm. is from paragraph four. Although the teaching that priestly ordination is to be reserved to men alone has been preserved by the constant and universal tradition of the church and firmly taught by the magisterium in its more recent documents, at the present time in some places it is nonetheless considered still open to debate. Or the church's judgment that women are not to be ad admitted to ordination is considered to have a merely disciplinary force. And then he goes on to the big whammy statement. 
And by the way, if you're reading a church document and you hear the word wherefore, um, <laughs> you can pretty much assume that what's going to be said is important. Um, he says, wherefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance. So if wherefore wasn't enough, there was that whole phrase, a matter which pertains to the church's divine constitution itself. Okay. So he's like really making it clear, like, this is super important. Listen up. In virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren. Okay. That's like the fourth statement. That's like, no, seriously, listen up. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, I declare that. Anytime you hear this in a church document, what's following is in, uh, infallibly declared. I, there's no sort of ambiguity about it. So anyway, enough of my commentary. I'll read that whole paragraph again. Mm -hmm. Wherefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance, a matter which pertains to the church's divine constitution itself, in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, I declare that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the church's faithful. Now, some people will read that and go, oh, well, he's talking about priests, priestly ordination. But if we understand what the sacrament is, the sacrament of holy orders as being three levels of participation in the priesthood of Jesus Christ, then it's very, very clear he's not just talking about the second level of ordination. He's talking about all three levels. Um, so that statement is incredibly clear that we can't, like you said, even if we wanted to, we couldn't, it's just something that we cannot change. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but I don't think any of them are slam dunks, but when you mm -hmm. take all of it as a totality, it's like, yeah, no, it's probably better that men are priests and women aren't. Um, even though they could both do the same job, mm -hmm. when you're talking about the priest giving everything he has to his community, where the people under his care, he is completely responsible for them. I think that reality that men cannot bear children is incredibly important. Because mm -hmm. even though we have clerical celibacy in the West, we do not in the East. Mm -hmm. So in the Eastern church, like there's nothing... There's nothing in the sacrament of holy orders that says that men cannot be married. Mm -hmm. That is a discipline in the West. Yeah. Right. So intrinsically, there's no issue. And oftentimes it's actually a good thing for Eastern Catholic priests and small parishes of a hundred families to be married and have kids because they sort of bring their community with them mm -hmm. wherever they go. They're in a small town in the middle of nowhere we don't have to worry about priests being lonely and isolated because they have their family mm -hmm. and they can devote themselves entirely to their family and to their flock in the larger parishes, like in the United States, like here in Phoenix, like I think St. Thomas Aquinas where I go is like 7,000 something families yeah. now. Yeah. It's crazy. Nobody can do that and have a family. Wow. Um, like as I, I don't even think, I don't even think it's possible at all. Like, I, I think you'd be so bad at being a, a right, husband exactly. and father. That's yeah. like, no, 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 no. You're actually failing in every aspect of your life. Right. Exactly. So I don't think there's an actual vocation to that. So why does that, why does that preclude women? Well, I don't think it does. This is where I'm saying it's not like a slam dunk argument, mm -hmm. but I think in the wisdom of God, there is this reality that, say you had a, a priesthood of the future where 
Um, hypothetically, the church wasn't very clear on whether or not women could be ordained. And then we had a, a could, I'll just skip to the point. Can you imagine a priest in a, in a giant parish saying, okay, well, I'm going to go take maternity leave now. Bye-bye. Right. Yeah. That's exactly. absurd. Mm -hmm. It just, it, it doesn't make sense from a vocational standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't be doing justice to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the natural sort of detachment that men have mm -hmm. really does lead them to do this vocation well, if they are all in, mm -hmm. like if they really give themselves to it. But like you said, there's, there are priests who um, do not have virtue. They are corrupt. Mm -hmm. They are, um, falling into all sorts of sexual sins. I mean, we have popes who fathered children. I mean, right. in the history of the church, like it was really awful. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there's a, I don't know, there's gotta be something to this reality of, um, women having the capacity to be mothers that just mm -hmm. in some ways, I think it's kind of laughable when people say, Oh, well, we, if we just had the ability to be priests, then dot, dot, dot. It's mm -hmm. like y you can bring life into the world. Right. That's so much more mm -hmm. than anything. Um, I mean, how, how, what, what are the priests going to do without people mm -hmm. in the world? Like there's a sort of even an ontological primacy of motherhood because without people in the world, then there's no one to minister to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, I feel like I'm rambling at this point, but yeah. it's a it's a huge issue, and I don't want to like step on any landmines that I'm like I didn't mean to say that. So I'm right, trying right. really hard to choose what I'm saying carefully. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm gonna shut yeah. up. Any thoughts? No, yeah, I mean, I I agree with everything that you said, and I think that um, I agree also that yeah, there isn't any particular one thing where it's like, well, we're just gonna look at that and be done. Like, close this mm. argument. We don't need to debate this anymore. I mean, I do think ultimately it comes down to men and women are different, right? That is like, that's really what it ultimately comes down to. But I do think even when I think of my own experience as a teacher and how invested I was as a spiritual mother in the lives of my students that I have at this point, I think like over a thousand students that I've taught who I love deeply and, and would give my life for. And when I have thought about, could I be a mom and also teach the way that I have, I couldn't do that. And so then when mm. I think, well, yeah, if I could translate that into a setting where I was caring for a parish and my own children, I definitely couldn't do that. And it's because men and women are different. Our hearts are different. The way we love and are able to minister is different. And that's a beautiful thing that it's beautiful that I can give of my life to students in a season of my life that will that would be very different when I really just need to totally orient to my family. Um, and part of that, you know, is, is, is a cultural thing, right? That there are cultures where, um, you know, women are, you know, the traditional breadwinners and men aren't whatever. But I, I do think that there's something there about men and women's hearts are different and men are able to be singularly focused, oriented towards a parish. It's, it's kind of how, women have better peripherals than men do that we can see more in our peripherals and men are, are very much um, 
uh, like oriented towards what's in front of them, which is kind of like a hunter gather thing. Um, mm-hmm. That just like everything about men is oriented towards it's it's singularly focused. It's this this is my parish, this is my flock. I'm ministering the sacraments. Whereas if I was a priest, I would be like, I can't leave this person who's crying to go say mass because this is this person in front of me. But there should be a sense of the sacraments are the most important thing. And I think just the way men are created, they have a different capacity to do that than women do. Hmm. Now, do I think that priests should be surrounded by women more and listening to women more and influenced by women more? Yes, because we still need the complementarity of men and women. Even if someone is a priest, I think that he needs to be in a healthy way asking women their opinions on things because you're going to get a fuller understanding of what the church needs when you ask mothers who are trying to bring their young kids to daily mass what they need from them in order to make them feel welcomed. Like I think that as a church, as a whole, we do need to do a better job of including women in everyday decisions around what will make the church more maternal because she is. Um, So I don't think that saying women can't be priests means that the way that the church is currently functioning with men and women is perfect. I do think that, you know, priests need to to listen to women more. I love that seminaries now, like most seminaries now have women as teachers. I think that that's really good for priests to learn from women or future priests to learn from women. So just by saying women can't be priests or shouldn't be priests doesn't mean that the church is doing exactly as she should in terms of making sure that both men and women's voices are listened to equally. It's just that the priesthood isn't the place to ensure that that is happening. I mean, I think any priest who isn't investing in a good, solid secretary, at the very least, who really runs the parish on the day-to-day is a, a very bad priest. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's always been like, in my mind, as someone who's worked for multiple parishes, if you have a pastor and a really good secretary, you can get along just fine. Mm -hmm. All the other things are really more or less extraneous. Now, obviously, we have all these different substructures. um, But the reason that's been true, and I'm talking about like hundreds of years back, the reason that's been true is because of that maternal care for detail Mm -hmm. and the people in front of them. Um, so where the pastor might see, well, I've got to do this, this, and this, and it's got to meet the bottom line and yada, yada, yada. The the lady who is at the desk meeting people who are coming in with their different issues and problems and really listening to them is really taking the pulse of the parish on a daily basis. And so the pastor absolutely needs to listen to them. And that's just one example. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in the Synod on Synodality, the meeting of meetings on the meeting while we have meetings about meetings. <laughs> um, anyway, I have, there's more we could talk about the Synod, but we're not going <laughs> to. Um, I think what's come out of it that I do think is really good is there were mothers present. Mm-hmm. Even though it's the Synod of Bishops, there's mothers there. There's mm-hmm. sisters there. Um, there's young lay people there. Uh fascinatingly not a single deacon was present hmm. that is anyway, fascinating yeah so they're going to talk about diaconate it would be so great if we had somebody who was living their diaconate get some representation uh, here to get some, whatever there, yeah. anyway we got everybody in the church except for the poor deacons um <laughs> that aside We're the fact that they, 
they had these women there and uh in fairly key roles mm-hmm. i mean one of the key roles of, yeah. of organizing the whole synod was a woman mm-hmm. um who seems to be well listened to by a lot of the cardinals and the pope mm-hmm. that's incredibly healthy and that's also right. just answering the call of vatican too is the the clergy and the laity are called to work closer together mm-hmm. not just in sort of um little ways here or there in practical matters in the parish, but even in governance, Mm -hmm. that there's some sort of place where lay people, um, men and women can come and give their voice. Right. And again, this is all assuming that everybody's on the same page about who they are, what their role in the church is fundamentally, and Mm -hmm. that following Christ is the most important thing. Right. So that fidelity is non-negotiable. So this isn't mm-hmm. some sort of, well, let's just open up the doors and let anybody in, and especially that dissident um, feminazi over there. Dang it, I said I wasn't going to bring that up, but here we go. <laughs> anyway, whatever, we're leaving it in. Um, it's not like you can just have anybody come in and give their opinion about anything. That's one of the critiques of the Synod, really, is like yeah. everybody's just talking and we're listening, and it's like, what's the point of all this? Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is, if everybody's on the same page about fidelity to Christ in his church and they're moving together, then that sort of synergy actually works incredibly well. Mm-hmm. What I find super interesting, and I'm not trying to get political here. And so like, I'm going to use the terms conservative and liberal, and it's really not helpful, but it's the best we've got. But mm-hmm. when I look at the church, especially in America, the more liberally minded, progressively minded um, bishops don't have a lot of representation of lay women who they're listening to, who is advising them um, by and large. I mean, there's obviously people can pull up counterexamples, hmm. but when you look at like what Bishop Olmsted set up in Phoenix, I mean, the chancellor is a woman. The chancellor of the diocese hmm. is a woman, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Shavira, and she has been. And now Bishop Dolan in Phoenix has made her co-moderator of the Curia. Hmm. That's like, that's not normal mm-hmm. in the history of the church. And yet here we are, and she's doing a great job. So, yeah. And uh, Bishop Chaput in Philadelphia, uh, uh, Bishop Emeritus, had a lot of women around him uh, advising him, um, a lot of men and women, lay people, religious. I mean, there's mm-hmm. this real desire that if we're going to be the church together, then we need to listen to one another. We need to move together and mm-hmm. make sure that people aren't being forgotten because right. we shouldn't marginalize anyone um, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Like if it's one thing, if somebody's saying, well, I'm going to be a, I love sin. Sin's fine. This isn't a sin anyway. Okay. Maybe you deserve to be marginalized for a little bit until you come back uh, to a right way of thinking in. about it. Yeah. Um, but just to exclude someone because they're forgotten. I mean that no one wants that. No one should want that, mm-hmm. right? Especially those who don't have a voice. Um, I mean, this is why the pro-life movement was so important to someone like Bishop Olmsted. It's mm-hmm. like these people, these babies have no voice at all. We need to be their voice. Right. Um, these people at the end of their life have no voice. We need to be mm-hmm. their voice. Right. I think that genuine care for people, the genuine care for not just their bodies, but their souls If you have all of that, then I think we're moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I think that means that you have to have women involved in that. 
because otherwise you're necessarily excluding 50% of humanity. Right. Right. And there is, I agree with everything that you just said. And, and I think perhaps one of the differences now that has been different historically throughout the church up until the past couple hundred years is that women used to be one of those groups who needed someone else to be their voice because women weren't educated and they weren't in spaces where their voices could be heard. And now we're in a time where women are just as or often more educated than men are and are able to receive education and are able to stand up for themselves and be their own voices and their own advocates. And so there's a there has been a shift in not how the church views women's dignity, but how the church includes women in these decisions. And I think it comes down to a proper understanding, like you said, of our roles in the church and a humility and understanding where the extent of those roles ends and where we need to bring someone else in. And that if priests are able to have the humility to say, my primary vocation is to provide the sacraments. I see this often as a bioethicist that I know far more than the average priest does about bioethical issues that a couple would face in their marriage. But if there's an assumption that a priest knows this just because he's a priest, that's A, not fair to the priest, B, not fair to the couple, and C, not fair to truth, right? That it's, we're, we're looking to the wrong places for answers. And that priests are like, please don't ask me about the intricacies of IUI and how that might be more ethical than IVF or whatever, because they're like, that's not actually my primary role. My primary role is to provide the sacraments. And we should be able to let them do that and to be able to say, actually, our church is so full and so dynamic, and we have other faithful Catholics who can answer these questions for you. So there's a humility and understanding where our roles end and where others begin and allowing that to to operate properly when everyone is, like you said, faithful um, to the to the Catholic Church. So I think all of those things considered together is is really where people would find a lot of peace on this issue. Yep. All right, that's a good place to end. You end there? <laughs> yeah, I got nothing to add. I, I'll just tack on that. Yep, I agree. <laughs> Actually, I don't even need a yep, I agree. I think you should just close this out. I'll just say, okay, okay I'll say something, and then you take it away. So Okay. I think that's as good a place to end as any. I, I agree. I think this has been a great conversation. Um, I think people need to chill out, honestly, just take a breath, and recognize that the Second Vatican Council does call very clearly that the priests, the clergy are called to sanctify the laity and the laity are called to sanctify the world. And if we allow that to flow, then everyone will be better off for it. It's not about power. It's about, like you said, responsibility. Who is under my care and am I serving them? Mm -hmm. Amen. All right. Well, that is all we have for you today. If there's any urgent updates on this wonderful synod that is currently happening, we will obviously keep you updated. Um, but until then, we will see you guys next time. Please make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube. We are also on Substack at Good Distinctions. Um, we're also available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And Will, thank you so much for your time today. Good Distinctions are the spice of life. And we'll see you next time.